Thank you for listening to this message from Rooted and Resolved. Good morning. Take your copy of God's Word and let's turn together to the book of Genesis chapter 15. We have a short amount of time and a lot to get through. So let's, let's get to it. Um, I want to, I need to give you this explanation for those of you that are not familiar with uh, Tinder. I need to tell you about, you know, the dating app Tinder, you know. Tinder, I'm not on the dating app Tinder, by the way, <laughs> just so you know. <sighs> yeah. <clears throat> Although I do have a friend who was on Tinder for a while and he would send me pictures, you know, profile pictures, and they were great. They were some of, the, some of his little captions with the pictures were the best. But on Tinder, if you get this profile pops up for you, you swipe right if you're interested in that person. You swipe left if you're not interested in that person. If, if someone else on the other end sees your picture and they swipe right, they're interested in you, and you swipe right on them, then you get a match. But you don't know how many people have swiped left on you. You know, you don't know how many, how many people have said rejected, 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 rejected. You only see the people that swipe right. With you. So I watched this video this week. This video is a, a line of people who are, who are doing Tinder in real life. It's a line of guys and a line of girls, and they're facing each other. And the guy and girl at the front of the line, there's a countdown, three, two, one, and then they, in real time, swipe, you know, left or right. And if, you, if, you get, if, if somebody swipes right on you, you get to stay in the front of the line. But if they swipe left, you have to go to the back of the line. Whole time I watched it, nobody, nobody, um, nobody. There was not a match. Nobody swiped right together, but it was difficult to watch because there, you know, in this room full of people, you know, you'd see this guy who, would, you know, he's he's looking at this great looking girl over there, and he says, "Oh yeah, right," and she says, "No way, Jose." <laughs> Back of the line, and and you watch these people put themselves out there, right, to just be rejected. That was not my dating experience, you know? Amy and I had done several things together in groups of people before I asked her out on a date. I could pick up on a few cues, you know what I mean? I knew, I knew that obviously that she thought I was good looking, right? <laughs> obviously, devastatingly charming, all those things. I could pick up on what she was, on, what, on the signals that she was throwing out. So when I ask her out on a date, I was pretty sure what the answer was going to be, you know? Not these folks. They stand there in front of each other, and they put themselves out there only to be swiped left on, right? I tell you that story about that video because it's a little bit of the way Abraham feels in this passage, I think. When you start Genesis chapter 15, we've watched God call Abram to follow him, and Abraham obeyed. He says, go to the place that I will show you. And Abram obeyed. Now, we know there were a few little hitches along, but we know that, that through all that, Abraham has been repentant. Every time, he's, every time he's messed up, he seems to be trusting in God, following God. God also made some big promises to Abram. One of those promises was you'll be the father of many nations. At the beginning of, Abram, at the beginning of Genesis 15, Abram has no baby. It doesn't seem like God's going to come through with the promises that he has told Abram that he will fulfill for him. 
How's Abram supposed to trust God? That's what this sermon series is all about, learning to trust God. And, and we've seen Abram go out on a limb here. He's put himself out there, and yet it doesn't seem like God is going to fulfill the promises that he's made to Abram, at least when this chapter begins. The question we would ask today, and I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but maybe you've done that. Maybe you've experienced this feeling where you're thinking, God, I'm faithfully following you. God, I'm trying to do what you're asking of me. But God, I'm not sure that you're being faithful to me. God, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that, that, that when I call out, you're, you're even hearing me pray. God, I feel like you've promised me some things. I feel like you've shown me some things. And God, I'm not seeing that in front of me. The question that, of the title of the sermon today is, Do We Trust in Vain? It's the question that Abraham would ask of himself. Am I trusting in vain? Have I put myself out there? What good is following the Lord here? What is, this, what is this benefiting me? Is this right? Have I put myself out there all for naught? In the message today, we're going to read this passage, try to understand where Abraham is, but I will tell you that that feeling and that thought that Abraham has is only where he exists when the chapter begins. Through the course of it, God responds in such a huge and meaningful way. That's what I want us to read. We're going to read the entire chapter together. Let's start in verse 1. After these things, you know, the kidnap of Lot, and after, the, um, after the Abraham meeting the kings and all of that, the verses say, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you were able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. He said, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each against the other. But he not, did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. 
on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites, the Hittites, Prizites and Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. Let's consider all that Abram, all that God tells Abram. And after he asked this question, Abram may feel that his faith is in vain. He's put himself out there. And I will tell you that I believe there are some of us in the room today that maybe feel that we have put ourselves out there. The question may come. Even if you've not asked the, the question in those exact same words, the question is, Lord, is my faith in vain? Have I trusted in you in vain? Let's look to the passage and understand where Abram is. First thing I want you to notice about this text is I want you to see the problem. Just in the first few verses of this text, we get the problem that, that God has made some really big promises to Abraham. He said, Abram, you're, you're going to have descendants that are going to be as numerous as the dust of the earth. Abram, you're, you're going to, you're, your offspring is going to bless the whole earth. But God doesn't seem to be doing anything. In our minds, God makes that promise, and what should we expect out of our wife? Her to say, hey, I'm pregnant. We would expect that, that God says this thing, and then, then following that, at some point, she's going she's gonna to be pregnant, and there's going to be a child here. But, but Sarah's not having a baby. There's no child. They were, they were getting older day by day. Imagine the emotional kind of progression that Abraham experienced where God makes this promise to him back in Genesis 12 and we've had a lot of events that we've looked at since then. God makes that promise and there's probably this initial excitement within Abram and Sarah. They had been childless and God makes that promise and now there's the excitement that God's going to do this new thing. But then as time goes by, you, nothing changes is this really going to happen? Not only does the excitement wane, but you start to question God. You start to question the promise. You start to question his goodness. Abram and Sarah probably start to question their own future because they were banking on this promise from God. Now what does my future look like? Abram, this is burdening Abram's heart. Now, there is no verse here that tells us that that's how Abraham was feeling. Did you notice how the passage begins? It's really interesting that it doesn't begin with Abram coming to God and saying, God, you're not doing what you said you were going to do. It's not how the passage begins. The passage begins with God speaking to Abram. Notice his first words. Fear not, Abram. Now listen, I read a lot of commentaries through the week um, to study and prepare to do whatever else. And typically, I will tell you that those people that I read in those commentaries, they are far smarter than me. You know what I mean? They just, they're just smarter than me. But I'm going to tell you right now, this week, I'm not so sure, you know? There was a lot of discussion about what is Abraham afraid of? Fear not. Why would God say that to him? Some people said, well, you know, he had, um, he had defeated those eastern kings and Cater Laomer, and maybe he's worried that all of them are going to come back and get their revenge on him. He's, uh, he's made this decision to not accept the agreement with Bera, king of Sodom. Remember that we talked about last week? Maybe, he, maybe he's worried that he's set himself as an enemy 
against Sodom and the king of Sodom, and maybe he's worried about that. One commentator said, all of these things had happened and they were traumatic, and after it's all over with, Abram just, just emotionally falls apart. Another commentator said, Moses, who's writing this, doesn't even tell us what he's afraid of. But a little common sense says, you know what he's afraid of? God's not going to keep his promise. That's what he's afraid of. God speaks this to him, and when Abraham responds to what God has said, what is the very thing that Abram talks about? Well, God, why shouldn't I be afraid? You promised me a child, and I don't have one. If I were to die today, God, this joker over here, my servant, Eliezer, that's going to be the guy who would inherit everything I have. God, you've promised me descendants, and I don't have one. That's what he was afraid of. He was afraid that, that he had put himself out there. He was afraid that he was trusting in vain. That's the only thing Abraham replies about. That's what he's worried about. It's a problem that in his mind, he would have done it differently. Abram would have done it differently, and God is not doing it the way that he wants it done or that he can even imagine it happening at this point. At this point, it seems like an impossibility from a human perspective. Have you ever found yourself in that like pattern where the fear that's in your heart is, is God going to keep his word? God, I know what your word says, but, but God, I'm not experiencing a peace that passes all understanding. God, I'm not experiencing what, what I think I should be experiencing as a Christian. Have you ever felt those things? This is where Abram is. And I think that it's really important for us in learning to trust God to acknowledge the moments when we don't trust God. You know? Like that's how, that's how you learn to trust him more is that you're acknowledging the moments when you feel this way. Genuine, real faith is a faith that has been tested and tried and holds true. And so the moments when we feel this way it's all, uh, it's all a way to grow our faith, to help us in our faith. In this moment, God could have given that promise to, to Abram in Genesis 12, and in Genesis 13, Sarah could have had a baby. But God's will happens in God's way, and it happens in God's time. Notice that in this moment, God does not, get on to Abraham or rebuke him or chide him for his disbelief. Did you notice that? God knows his heart. That's why he says, fear not. He knows that it's really not bitterness that he feels, it's fear. And he addresses that fear. He says, fear not. And then God reminds Abram of who he is. I'm your shield, he says. I'm your shield. I'm your protection. I'm your provision. In fact, the next statement is, your reward shall be very great. I really like, um, no other translation that I read this week puts it this way, but it's really interesting the way that the NIV translate, that translates what God said. The NIV reads, do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. It, it echoes some other people that I was reading this week, um, Matthew Henry, for instance, the Lord promised not to be only thy rewarder, but thy reward. 
Abram, my, the, the answer, the fulfillment to your promises are found in me. Don't lose faith in, in me. S- stay with me, Abram. I'm your shield. I'm your provision. You know, I love the way that God responds to that, where God reminds, sim- simply reminds Abram of who he is. And I believe today that if you're experiencing some of those doubts in your faith, one of the greatest things we can do is remember who God is. Everything that we know about God shows us that he's not cruel, God is not unjust, God is not unloving, and so if we try to characterize him that way through our own perception, we've, we've missed the mark somewhere. And so if we can't understand what God is doing, the failure is not in God, the failure is in our ability to understand. And let's be honest, what was going on with Abram here was so much bigger than Abram. And if if Abram would have reduced the promises of God down to his minute, temporal little life, it would not have the same significance that it does as we read this thousands of years later. There's something going on with this promise to Abraham that will span the centuries through Jesus Christ. It's this promise that's made to Abram, and God goes on to reiterate that. That's the problem that Abram was feeling, but let's talk a little bit about the promise that God makes. In fact, God makes a series of promises. He's reiterating to Abram the promise that he made before, but what God does for Abram is he he kind of gives him an explanation in the sense of he doesn't reveal every single thing to Abram about what this looks like. But what he does tell Abram is, Abram, I made you a promise. I'm going to be faithful to fulfill it. Now, you're not going to see this promise fulfilled exactly the way you think that it's going to be fulfilled. I'm not going to give you uh, a huge family that you're going to watch grow and fill the whole earth and bless the whole earth in your lifetime. It's not what he's saying. In fact, if you look at this, I'm, I'm breaking this apart. So let's just look through it for just a second. There's sections where you go, um, we're going to talk about this sacrifice and all that sort of stuff that happens in just a minute, but, but take that away for just a minute. Take those verses away, and let's just focus on the, the verses that deal with the promises that God made to Abram. The first set comes in verses 4 through 7. Do you see that? Where he says, he's reiterating that to him. He says, look, your heir is going to be of your own blood. It's not going to be a servant. It's going to be your own son by your own blood that your heir is going to be, that this, these, this, this, these descendants are going to come. And they're going to be as numerous as the earth before he pointed him to the dust of the ground. Where does he point him this time? to the stars in the heavens. And he says, look up there. Can you count those? If you could count those, you could count your descendants. He's giving him a vision. He's reiterating. That's a reiteration of a promise God has already made to Abram. But then look down to verses 13 through 16. In those verses, God reveals a whole lot of future events to Abram. And he's revealing it to him, I believe, so that he understands that this promise... In, in, in chronological order, is going to extend far past Abram's, Abram's death. The, the timeline of this promise is greater than Abraham's timeline. You know that because in the, do you see in verse 15, where he says, as for you, you shall go to your fathers at peace. You will be buried in a good old age, but the story continues. 
If you go back and you look at all the things that God promises to him, it's really interesting and it's amazing that we see this promise come to him. Look at verse 13. Hundreds of years before it happens, he says, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. You know where that is, don't you? It's Egypt. And they will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. Think about all of the, think about all of the Hebrew slaves the toil and the struggle of their life in slavery in Egypt. Think about all the the slaves that died in Egyptian slavery, maybe spending their whole life praying for God to bring freedom. And it wasn't a shock to God. God. God knows all of that before it ever happens. They're going to be sojourners in the land and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. But look at what he says in verse 14. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. What is that? Plagues. The army's covered up by the Red Sea. And you and the, the Hebrews will come afterward. They shall come out with great possessions. Go down to verse 16. They will come back here to this promised land in the fourth generation. And then he uses this interesting phrase, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. At this moment, while Abram is worshiping God at Bethel and at Hebron, and he's worshiping the one true God, he's surrounded by a group of pagan people who will never come to the one true God. They will continue to live their life in rejection of him, snubbing their nose at him and worshiping false idols, even though they're living right next door to guys like Abram, guys like Melchizedek, and yet they never put their trust in the one true God. Their life will be idolatry and it will be sinfulness. And God says in that moment, I'm going to use the Hebrew people to come back and to take this land and I'm going to punish the pagan nations that live here. But their iniquity is not yet complete. Do you know what he's saying right there? Right now I'm being gracious to them. Right now I'm calling to them. Right now I'm reaching out to them. But they won't return. And I'm going to be gracious for all these hundreds of years. And then that punishment's going to come. He uses these future events. He talks about the exodus. He talks about them coming to the promised land. And then when you go down to verses 18 through 21, he talks about about that promised land. He describes it and he says, this is a land for Abram's descendants. I don't know if you're like me, but if you're like me, when I have felt this way, like I'm serving in in vain, God does some things to remind me. Does he not do that for you? Does he not show you that he's in control? Maybe he doesn't lay out a generational path for me, you know, to see what it's going to look like in the future. But God does things to show me that he's in control. God reminds me of how he has been faithful in the past. He, where, he has, he, where he has my circumstances in his hand and where I am only a small part of a bigger picture. Has God ever done that for you? When I feel like I'm trusting in vain, God says, no, 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 you can trust me. Let me show you how big I am. And then he does something that only God can do or he reveals a thing to me that only God can reveal. It's not, it may not be as significant for the writing of history as this covenant was with Abraham, but God speaks to my own heart 
And we can kind of conclude when this is over with that Abram's not feeling the same way that he was at the beginning of this chapter. Now, he will have days where he will continue to doubt, obviously, if you know the rest of the story. But here, God is making this promise and saying, trust in me, I'm not going to let you down. You are only a small part of a big picture. You've got a role to play. Trust me in this. Needless to say, when God spoke to his heart, it was enough to give Abram the faith that he needed. The question I would say to you is, what would God speak to you today? Think about that for just a moment. God spoke to his heart, and it, was, it, was, it produced in Abram the faith that he needed. Do you see in verse 6 what it says? He believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. It was not that he believed just this promise about descendants. At that point in the conversation, seemingly God had not even told him about the future in Egypt and, and the exodus and the promised land that would be given to them. It was in that moment, after God speaks to him and shows him and reiterates that promise, he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. We do not have time to go into the depths of that verse today. Book of Romans chapter 4 does that at great length. But you understand that the tie together here is when God spoke to Abram's heart, it gave him the faith that he needed. I don't know where you are today, but if you're here today and you lack faith in him, I believe that that springs from God's voice to you. If you're here today and you're a Christian and you have, you, things have not gone the way that you predicted or planned and your question to God would be, God, where are you, man? Like, I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm here at church. I'm here at church. I put my tithes in the offering plate. I try to help people. I faithfully teach that Sunday school class and put up with those little, you know, rugrats. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really trying to serve you, God. I, I, I want to be a good witness for you at work. And God, it, I don't know where you are. The word that he would speak to you will produce the faith in you that will bring about endurance to keep going. If you're here today and you don't know him as Lord and Savior and your faith is in everything but in him, you will never come to him and you will never have the faith to put in him until he speaks a word to your heart and produces it in you. This is what happens with Abram. This is what happens with us. If you don't know him as Lord and Savior, listen to the voice of God that is speaking to you that he is bigger than you and you are a part of the plan that he has designed. And when he speaks that to your heart and convicts you of your sin, trust in him. That's what he does. See the problem, see the promise. Very quickly, let's talk about the provision. We have not touched on to this point yet in the chapter, we have not touched on the weirdest part of this text at all. I know there was some confusion with the slides and the scripture I was putting up, but were you listening to what I was reading? That in the middle of this, around verse 8, around, around verse 9, 10, are you reading those weird verses? Go get a cow, go get a goat, go get a ram, go get a couple of birds. Abram cuts them in two. Do you hear this? 
and separates them. A half a cow over here and the other half over there. Imagine the the bloody trail between them. Um, Imagine this, this line of carcasses. He didn't kill the birds, it says. One bird over here, one bird over there. I mean, he killed them, but he didn't slaughter them. He didn't maim them. Just a whole bird over here and a whole bird over here, I imagine, right? You got these maimed animal parts, and then Abram just sits and waits. That's weird. It's weird for us sitting here, but it's, it's not weird under the context of that culture. In fact, um, in that culture, you see this cutting ceremony, this cutting of a covenant is what it's called. You see this ha- referred to in Jeremiah 34. You see it referred to in other texts that are not biblical, but are just, you know, that, that, are, um, that are like contemporary with, with these sort of things. You'll see the same ritual happening. This is the essence of the ritual. An agreement was made, a covenant was made. Like today, we might sign a contract or we might shake hands on something, right? For them, they would cut those animals apart, divide them that way, and both parties in the covenant, in the contract, would walk between those sacrifices. And what they were saying was, by passing through that together, they were saying, I'm going through this with you, and if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, my fate should be like these animals. May my fate cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. If I do not do this, this fate should be mine. I'm going to keep this covenant with you. This is a common ritual. But if you read this text, even though it's weird to us, common for them, even what we know of it as a ritual, as a cutting of a covenant ritual, there are some things about this particular instance of this ritual that are different from any other time that it would happen. Two of them that I notice primarily. One, Abram cuts them apart. I will tell you this too, you can also know that it's common because in verse 9, back up to verse 8, God has made this promise. Abram says, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God answers in a way that's weird for me and you, but if it's a common ritual, God said to Abram, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, a pigeon. Then there's a period and God stops. There's nothing else said. Then in verse 10, it says, Abram brought him all these and cut them in half. How am I to know that you're going to keep your word? I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll make a covenant. We'll have a cutting of the covenant ceremony. Go get those animals. And he doesn't even tell him to cut him in two, but Abram knows that's what we're doing. It surrounds the covenant. It surrounds the agreement. We're going to make this together. God says, I'm going to sign this contract with you. Abram understands that. He cuts them apart, but notice what happens. Instead of of God appearing or, or God and Abram walking through, there's a long delay here. Do you notice that Abram's just sitting out there all day, smelling all of these animals he's cut into, fighting off the birds. It says the birds, the buzzards start coming, and Abram's shooing them away and trying to get them out of there. All day he sits out there. And it's not until nightfall that something happens. That's interesting to me. It's almost like God is saying, Abram, I'm going to keep my word to you. I'm going to keep this covenant with you. 
you're going to have to wait a while. There may even be some buzzards along the way. Hang in there with me. Because then night comes. What happens when it gets dark? It says that when it gets dark, God causes a great sleep to fall on Abram. I was trying to find the verse. Verse 17. And it, and, and it says that... Um, uh, no, that's not where it is. Uh, 12, verse 12. The sun was going down and a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, a dreadful and a great darkness fell on him. It's, imagine it, it's so dark outside. That's really important for what's going to happen in verse 17. Because what happens in verse 17 notes the difference between a normal cutting of the covenant ceremony. There's that long delay. That's the first difference. But the second difference is both parties... Do not walk between the sacrifices. When the walking happens, when the, when the walking, when they pass through these sacrifices, Abram's asleep. He's in a deep sleep, assuming that God has given him a vision of these things, that he's able to see what is happening while he's asleep. He's able to see and recognize what's happening here. It's very dark. It says it's a great and dreadful darkness. And so what stands out in that darkness is how God reveals himself. God reveals himself in two different images. He reveals himself in the smoking fire pot. Imagine the word there is just like a furnace. So uh, I don't imagine that it's a, a furnace. I imagine it's like a, a, a pot. It's like a, it's, like a, it's like a barrel with a fire in it, you know? It's like, a, it's like a cauldron with a, with a fire built in it. It's smoking, but it's very hot. And it's smoking with all of that fire that's inside it. And a torch. My dad, um, my dad preached through Genesis when I was, this was back in the 90s. My dad preached through Genesis. It took him three and a half years on Sunday morning to preach all the way through the book of Genesis. And several years ago at Christmas, he gave me all of those outlines from, from Genesis. And there's multiple messages from, from Genesis chapter 15. But my dad draws a few, a little symbolism from those two things. My dad talks about how the burning fire pot images like this burning of our sins, like this purging of our sins. It's a picture of our salvation. And the lamp, the, the torch to be the, the presence of the Holy Spirit abiding with us. I love my dad. But John Calvin also has a really great explanation of those things that I think is really good. He talks about the, the smoking fire pot, how that fire pot produces smoke in this, in this black, dark night, and it represents the mystery around it all. Abraham doesn't see how God is going to reveal all of these things, but what's there to shine the way through the smoke? This torch. It's like God saying, in the middle of the darkness of the night, in the middle of all this billowing smoke, here I am. Abram, I'm showing you the way. But what's so amazing about this is that only Abram walks through the sacrifices. I mean, only God walks through the sacrifices. Abram's asleep. Do you know why that is? Because nothing was required of Abram for this covenant to happen. Abram could fail over and over and over again, and God was going to be faithful. God was going to fulfill this promise to Abram. And you know how he would do it? Through that one perfect sacrifice. 
the one who would come, and, and he was pictured in the Old Testament in, you know, heifers and, and goats and rams and doves that were slain and killed and mutilated and their blood spilled out. All of that blood sacrifice in the Old Testament, what's it pointing to? The cross of Jesus. The cross where he would bleed and die for me and you, where he would be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Do you understand that God is the rewarder? God is saying, I'm going to keep this promise to you and I'm going to be the one who's going to fulfill it. I'm going to come clothed in human flesh and live among you and die on the cross for your sins. I am going to spur you by the power of my Holy Spirit to respond to this message. I am going to give you the power that you need. I'm going to give you the faith that you need. It is through me being born as one of your descendants that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. God is the one who requires the sacrifice, and he himself becomes the sacrifice for you and I. He is the one in which whom all of our trust should go. When, when we trust in vain, when we feel like, do I trust in vain? Do, do I trust in vain? We don't trust in vain. We serve a God who is sovereign, who knows the future, who is true to his word. I want to close with a story and I'll be done. Louisa Stead was born in 1850 in Dover, England. Louisa came to Christ and was saved when she was nine years old. And all through her teenage years, she felt a call to missions. She felt a call to, to be a missionary. At the age of 21, she moved to her, at, 20, by the, at age 21, she was living in the United States at that point. She had moved to the United States and she was attending a revival service in Ohio. And it was at that revival service that she really felt the, the Lord impress upon her heart the call to missions, and she surrendered to that call. Not long after that service, she was married, and she made plans to go to China, but she had lots of health trouble that prevented her from making that trip then to go and to serve on the foreign mission field. One day, um, one day several years later, her and her husband and her daughter were picnicking on Long Island, New York, and that day her husband, her husband drowned off the coast that day. Don't really know what happened. There's conflicting stories. Some stories say that there was a boy who was drowning. He went in to save the boy, and he, he ended up and saved the boy, but he died. Other reports say that both he and the boy died. Some reports say that it was their daughter, Lily, that was, that was drowning, that he, he saved her, and he, he died. But whatever happened, this tragedy struck in their life, and it devastated Louisa and her daughter, Lily, and they really struggled, had some really, really hard, dark times after that. But she knew that God had called her to the mission field. She knew that. And so she left, took, taking her daughter, she went and moved to South Africa where she would serve the Lord for 15 years as missionary. She met another man there and they married and they served together. She, encountered, she had some more health trouble when she was in South Africa and came back to the United States. Her husband pastored a small Methodist church and... and um, she had recovered from her, from her bad health. 19, uh, 1900, her and her husband went to New York to this missions conference where both of them were so enthused about mission work when they left that, left that conference. She said, this is what God's called me to. I've got to go back to the mission field. 
And so they left that church, and both of them went to serve in Rhodesia. Now, Rhodesia was the colonial name. That's what, what today we know as Zimbabwe. She went to what's now known as the city of Mutari, which is, um, see my map? Um, we kind of have been going to Machingo down here in the southeast, but Mutari's on this far eastern side, about the, about the very center of Zimbabwe on the eastern side. So it would, be, it would be northeast of where we typically go when we're in Zimbabwe. But her and her husband went there and served for 11 years, served in this little Methodist mission. She retired in 1911 and died in, ni- in 19, I mean, uh, yeah, 1917 she died. And her, her daughter remained there. Her and her husband remained there in Zimbabwe and continued that mission work. And, and that's, that's gro- I mean, she has many years of faithful service as a missionary. That's not what we remember her for. It's not why we remember her. In the days after her husband died, she and her, her first husband died, her and her daughter Lily really struggled. They struggled to have enough food. Um, financially, they just didn't have anything. One night, they got ready to eat supper, and there was no food, nothing for them to eat. They sat down at the table and they prayed together. And before their prayer was finished, there was a knock at the door. And the person at the door gave her a hot meal and gave her an envelope full of money. That night, they ate. And then she laid Lily down to sleep. And she took pencil and paper and she wrote a hymn that you are very familiar with. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word just to rest upon his promise just to know the saith the lord keep going jesus jesus how i trust him how i've proved him more and more jesus jesus precious jesus oh for grace to trust in more. It is sweet to trust in Jesus. We don't do it in vain. It's sweet to trust in Jesus. And in the moments then when we doubt it, remember that song. Because the last, line, the last couple lines of that chorus have spoken to me in some really dark times. Oh, Jesus, Jesus. Precious Jesus. How I've proved him. Or and or he has shown up in my life over and over again. Why would I doubt him now? But I do. So Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust you more. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Rooted and Resolved is a ministry of Center Grove Baptist Church. You can find us at centergrovebaptist.com.